It's safe to say that the late 60s were troubling and divisive times in the United States, and no issue was more divisive at that time than the war in Vietnam. America's involvement in Vietnam led to widespread protests across the country, especially on college campuses. Tensions rose as the decade came to a close, and by 1970, it seemed they were coming to a head. Who could have guessed that they would reach their boiling point that May at a school in North Central Ohio? The school was Kent State, and what happened there in the first days of May 1970 are difficult to comprehend, even now, almost 50 years later. On April 30th, 1970, then-President Richard Nixon, who had been elected in part on promises to end the war in Vietnam, announced the U.S. invasion of Cambodia. The next day, May 1st, about 500 students gathered in protest on the Central Commons at Kent State. The protest was a quiet one, but before it broke up and the students went on their way, a larger protest was planned for the following Monday, May 4th. That night, though, an angry mob poured out of downtown bars and began hurling rocks and beer bottles at police. A state of emergency was declared, and police used tear gas to disperse the crowd. The following day, May 2nd, word spread around town that radical revolutionaries were present in Kent, and their plan was nothing less than destroying the town and the university. Several businesses claimed to have received threats of violence. Kent Mayor Leroy Satram asked the governor to deploy the National Guard to Kent. His request was granted. That night saw more unrest, which turned destructive as the ROTC building was set on fire. Protesters slashed fire hoses and threw rocks at firefighters. The newly arrived National Guard moved in to disperse the crowd. The next day, May 3rd, Ohio Governor Jim Rhodes held a press conference. Pounding his desk with his fist, he called the protesters un-American. He made claims that outside infiltrators were stirring up the student body and needed to be stopped. He stated, quote, We are going to use every part of the law enforcement agency of Ohio to drive them out of Kent. We're going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms, end quote. That night, around 8 p.m., students began to gather again in protest. The National Guard again forcefully dispersed them using tear gas. Several students were also bayoneted. A curfew was announced, and the National Guard was charged with its enforcement. May 4th, 12 noon, the aforementioned protest began on the University Commons. Despite city and university officials' attempts to ban the protest, Around 2,000 students showed up that day. The National Guard gave an order to disperse or face arrest. Tear gas was once again employed, but the wind that day blew it away from the protest, and it didn't have the desired effect. When it became clear that the protesters had no intention of leaving, 77 National Guardsmen fixed their bayonets and marched on the rally. Seeing them approach, the protesters left the commons. The guardsmen pursued them. Many of the protesters gave up and left, but some turned and angrily confronted the guardsmen, throwing rocks at them. The guardsmen began retracing their steps towards the commons when, at 1224, they stopped. They turned and no less than 23 of them 
shouldered their weapons, and fired blindly into the crowd. 67 shots were fired over the next 13 seconds. Two of the protesters, Allison Krauss and Jeffrey Miller, were killed. Sandra Schuer and William Schroeder, who were on their way to class and had not been a part of the protest, were also killed. Nine others were wounded. The guardsmen later claimed that snipers had fired on them first, but no evidence of this was ever found. They also claimed they feared for their lives. No evidence shows that any of the protesters were armed that day with anything more than rocks. The nearest of the wounded was 70 feet away from where the guardsmen shot from. Of the four students killed that day, the closest was 225 feet away. Before those shots were fired, the protesters feared no permanent repercussions. Tear gas, arrest, or even a baton were things they were willing to risk for their beliefs. When those shots rang out in the Ohio afternoon of May 4th, that all changed. Some ran for their lives, while others rallied in anger. The day may have gone from bad to worse had Kent State geology professor Glenn Frank not stepped in and begged the students to go home. He understood the potential of what could happen. It took him 20 minutes, but eventually the students listened to him and left the area. As news got out about the shootings at Kent State, protests spread across the country. Over 4 million people participated, and 450 universities were closed as a result of the demonstrations. Five days after the shootings, 100,000 people gathered in my hometown of Washington, D.C. to protest the war and the killing of unarmed student protesters at Kent State. President Nixon's response was insensitive at best. His press secretary stated, quote, when dissent turns to violence, it invites tragedy, end quote. Nixon did appoint a commission on campus unrest, which concluded that, quote, even if the guardsmen faced danger, it was not a danger that called for lethal force. The indiscriminate firing of rifles into a crowd of students and the deaths that followed were unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable, end quote. It further stated that this should be the last time that loaded rifles were issued to guardsmen to confront student protesters. From the time that tea was dumped from British ships into Boston Harbor, we have believed in people's right to protest. So much so, in fact, that it is protected by our First Amendment to the Constitution. If we truly believe in the ideals this country was founded on, we must uphold those rights at all cost, even if no, especially if we disagree with what someone has to say. We must still support their freedom to say it. While some of the events that led up to the shooting that day weren't good, most notably the destruction of property, on May 4th, the student protesters were only exercising their constitutionally protected right to assemble. Those who are charged with keeping the peace and protecting this country have a difficult and dangerous job. But the use of lethal force on our own citizens must be an absolute last resort. Almost 50 years after the shootings at Kent State, these topics seem incredibly relevant today. Through all of the events that happened during the anti-war protests, the shootings at Kent State are probably thought of most often. This may be because of the lasting tribute and quintessential protest song, Ohio, 
written by Neil Young. The song still receives regular airplay today. It marked the end of whatever youthful naivete we may associate with the 1960s. It's also probably the song most associated with the state of Ohio, especially by those of us not from here. Tin Soldiers and Nixon's Coming. We're finally on our own. This summer, I hear the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. I've traveled the country over. Stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is, as always, a pleasure to be with you today. Over the few weeks since last we met, I've been traveling through northern Ohio to find the stories I'm going to share with you today. My journey took me to the tiny town of Dillonvale, Ohio, my maternal grandfather's hometown. There I learned about his father, who was an engineer on the Wheeling and Lake Erie Railroad, and about his mother's family, who came from a town of abolitionists. From there, I traveled north to the shores of beautiful Lake Erie, where I found maritime history and beachside resort towns, lighthouses, and waterfront sunsets. I traveled down to Cleveland and had an amazing time in the Cuyahoga Valley. And from there, I headed to quaint and quiet Toledo, where I sipped a Buckeye beer and was blown away by the beautiful Victorian architecture in the Old West End. It's been a great time in the Buckeye State. I've learned a lot, caught up with some old friends, and made some new ones as well. Some of those new friends are my musical guests on this week's show, Canton-based rock band Hey Monet. If you haven't yet heard of Hey Monet, you will. Their music is a whole lot of fun. I recorded the music for this show live at the Little C Music Festival in their hometown of Canton, Ohio. To hear more from Hey Monet, download their music from iTunes or check out their website, www.heymonet.com. That's www.heymonea.com. To find out more about me, to hear more about the places I've been, or just to get in touch, please visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, go before I sleep.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram and miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Let's get right to it this week. Grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and let me take you along on a journey through Northern Ohio. There's only one left, one left that we know of at least, out of thousands, perhaps tens of thousands. Today, there is only one. At over 175 years old, 
It stands stoically where it always has, in Nova, Ohio. A tribute to the lost legacy of the man who planted it. John Chapman was born September 26, 1774, in Leominster, in the British colony of Massachusetts. When he was just an infant, his father, Nathaniel, left to join the Continental Army and fought the British at Bunker Hill. While he was away, his wife, John's mother, Elizabeth, died giving birth to another son, Nathaniel Jr., who also died soon thereafter. John was cared for by family members until his father returned from the army in 1880. John's father, Nathaniel, would remarry, and he and his new wife, Lucy, would have 10 children together. When John was 18, he left the family farm and set off for the wild frontier. We don't know much about these years, but by what happened next, we can assume that John came to love the freedom of the frontier and learned valuable lessons on how not only to survive, but to thrive there. At some point, he apprenticed as a nurseryman and learned to plant and tend apple orchards. This trade suited him and would serve him well in the decades to come. As the Northwest Territory opened to settlers, frontier law stated that if people settled and developed permanent homesteads, they could claim ownership of the land. Since the planting of an apple orchard, which would take several years to bear fruit, was considered permanent in this context, that's exactly what John did. He would use his skills and knowledge to stay ahead of the settlers. He would plant his orchards, claim the land, and then sell it as the frontier pushed north and west. Now, the apples that John planted were not what we may think of today. Apples we eat are the product of a process called grafting, a form of asexual reproduction used in fruit planting for centuries. John was no doubt aware of grafting, but he was a follower of the new church, which preaches doing no harm. As John believed grafting hurt the trees, he didn't do it, but instead planted seeds. The apples that this process produced are called spitters, which is what you would do if you bit into one. Though basically inedible, those trees were essential in providing America's great frontier drink, hard cider. In those days, cider was the frontier's main drink, considered safer than water and easier and cheaper to produce than beer or wine. And they drank a lot of it. John lived a simple life on the frontier. He never really owned much except the land that he planted his trees on. He wore threadbare, cast-off clothes, if he wore clothes at all, and was said to rarely wear shoes. But he was always seen with his leather pouch, filled with apple seeds. Because of his religious beliefs, which he held to firmly and would share with anyone who would listen, he thought that the more he endured in this world, the less he would suffer in the next. He loved and respected all living things, so much so that he wouldn't build large fires for fear the insects would fly into it and die. Although it's probably just a myth, he was said to have helped heal a wolf with an injured leg who then followed him everywhere he went. John traveled thousands of miles in his life, planting his orchards and visiting with settlers. Although he was always welcomed into people's homes, he preferred to sleep on the bare ground in the forest he thought of as his home. His orchards grew all over what became Ohio, and also in Indiana, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Iowa. 
When he passed away at the age of 70 in 1845, he left a legacy of apples and was already considered a legend of the frontier. Sadly, when prohibition became the law of the land, the FBI took access to all those cider trees. The country lost its centuries-old tradition of the hard cider which helped the frontier push west, and it destroyed the legacy left by John Chapman. Destroyed the legacy, that is, except for one tree. One tree of thousands that still lives on in Nova, Ohio. That one tree that preserves the legacy of John Chapman. John Chapman, who we remember as Johnny Appleseed. Denton True Young was born March 29, 1867, in Gilmore, Ohio. He grew up on a farm and dropped out of school in the sixth grade to work alongside his father in the fields. He loved baseball and played from the time he was a kid. When he turned 21, he started playing for a semi-pro team in Carrollton, Ohio. In 1889, when he was 22, Young played for Canton in the Tri-State League, where he was paid a dollar a game. Canton finished last that year, but Young had 201 strikeouts and earned 15 wins as a pitcher. He later told people he pitched so hard in Canton, he almost tore the boards off the grandstands with his fastball. It was there that he earned the nickname we still remember him by today, the Cyclone. Thus, Denton Young would forever after be known as Cyclone Young, or Cy Young for short. In 1890, Cy Young signed on with the Cleveland Spiders. He won his first game in the big leagues with a three-hit, eight-to-one walloping of the Chicago Colts. Spiders catcher Chief Zimmer was said to have put a piece of beefsteak in his glove when Young was pitching to soften the blow and protect his hand. By 1892, Cy Young was an emerging star pitcher. He led the league in wins, earned run average, and shutouts. But his team lost the National League Championship that year to the Boston Bean Eaters. An interesting thing happened in a game in 1896, when the scheduled umpire didn't show, and the teams had to agree on someone to call the game. Cy Young was chosen that day and he would actually umpire four games during his career, a unique statistic for sure. Prior to the 1899 season, Cleveland Spiders owner Frank Robison bought the competing St. Louis Browns. He renamed them the Perfectos and moved many of his best players, young included, to the bigger market in St. Louis. The result was that the Spiders lost a record 134 games that year a record that still stands today, and they finished a full 35 games behind the next worst team, my hometown, Washington Senators. In 1901, Young signed with the American League Boston Americans and led that league in wins, strikeouts, and earn run average. 
1903, he helped lead Boston to an appearance in the first ever World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Since he started Game 1, Cy Young threw out the very first pitch in World Series history. He lost that game, but won his other two starts, and Boston went on to win the best of nine series 5-3. The following year, Young went on a pitching streak which may never be equaled. He pitched 25 and a third innings without giving up a hit, a record that stands today. That's 76 hitless batters in a row. The streak continued to 45 innings without a score. That year, he also pitched the first perfect game in American League history. In 1908, when he was 41, Cy Young pitched his third no-hitter and became the oldest player in league history to do so. That record stood for 82 years. In 1909, he went back to where it all began, as he was traded back to Cleveland, then called the Naps. The following year, he got his 500th win in a game versus my hometown, Washington Senators. As Young was warming up for the 1911 season, he was the oldest player in the league at 44 years old. Sporting Life joked, quote, The old boy is said to look better than any previous season since 1663, considered by many to be his best year since the summer of 1169, end quote. In August of that year, he was traded back to Boston, then called the Boston Rustlers, where he pitched his final games in the pros. Arm and finger issues arose during spring training for the 1912 season, and the great Cy Young retired at 45. The next year, he coached the Cleveland Green Sox in the independent Federal League, but when they went under, he left baseball and went home to his farm in rural Ohio. From 1913 until his wife passed away in 1933, he stayed on his farm happily growing potatoes and raising sheep, hogs, and chickens. Later in life, he worked as a store clerk and made frequent appearances around the country. In 1931, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Cy Young passed away in 1955 at the age of 88. The following year, an award was named in his honor, awarded each year to the best pitchers in the game. Many great pitchers have won the prestigious Cy Young Award, including seven-time winner and fellow Ohioan, Dayton native Roger Clemens. The great Cy Young still holds many records today, including 815 career starts, 749 complete games, and 7,356 innings pitched. His most celebrated record, though, is his 511 career wins, 94 more than second place Walter Johnson, who was featured in episode one of this podcast. One record that Cy Young holds that doesn't get as much attention, though, is the one I want to leave you with today. Cy Young also holds the Major League Baseball record for losses with 316. Cy Young went out every game and pitched his hardest. He wanted to win, but wasn't afraid to lose. He understood that was just part of the game. Let that be the lesson we take away from the great Cyclone then. Do what you do as best you can. And while you can't always win, you're destined to come out on top in the end.
Chloe Ardelia Wofford was born February 18, 1931, in Lorraine, Ohio. She was the second of four children born to Rama and George Wofford. George, her father, worked several jobs while Chloe was growing up, but his primary job was as a welder for U.S. Steel. Storytelling was a big part of growing up in the Wofford household and Chloe's parents would often regale her and her siblings with stories about African-American history, folk tales, songs, and ghost stories. They also taught their children to read at an early age. When I was in the first grade, she later remembered, nobody thought I was inferior. I was the only black in the class and the only child who could read. The world didn't expect much from a little black girl, but my father and mother certainly did. Lorraine was a working-class town when Chloe was growing up. Despite her going to school in the 30s and 40s, the schools, like the rest of town, were integrated. Chloe went to Lorraine High School, where she was on the debate team, the drama club, and the yearbook staff. She was a voracious reader, and her favorite authors were Tolstoy and Jane Austen. She graduated high school with honors in 1949 and set off from Ohio to go to Howard University in my hometown of Washington, D.C. I'm sorry to say that it was there that Chloe experienced segregation for the first time in her life. But Howard was a safe haven for Chloe. She continued to work in drama as a member of the Howard University Players and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1953. She went on to Cornell, where she got her master's degree in 1955. Chloe took her first teaching job at Texas Southern University in Houston. After two years there, she took a job at Howard, where she remained for the next seven years. It was there that she met her future husband. They married in 1958 and had two children, Harold and Slade, before divorcing in 1964. In 1965, Chloe took a job editing textbooks in Syracuse, and in 1967, she transferred to Random House in New York City. She became the first black woman senior editor in their fiction department. In this role, she was instrumental in bringing black literature into the mainstream. While working and raising two children on her own, Chloe still made time to write. She wrote late into the night, after her children were in bed, and was often up at 4 a.m. to write before they woke. Finally, in 1970, when Chloe was 39 years old, her first book was published. It was quite a success. Her second book was nominated for a National Book Award. Her third won a National Book Critics Circle Award and became a main selection in the Book of the Month Club, the first book by a black author to be chosen in 35 years. She continued to write to critical acclaim and would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize in fiction and a Nobel Prize in literature. She was awarded honorary doctorates of letters from Oxford, Harvard, the University of Geneva, and others. And in 2012, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor awarded in the United States. 
The name on these awards is hers, Chloe Wofford, the name she prefers, and the name her family knows her by. But you? You know her by a different name. You see, when her first book was published in 1970, the name on the cover was a surprise, even to her. The publisher printed the book under the name she knew Chloe by, a nickname her friends had called her since she was in college. As a last name, the publisher used her married name, although at that point she had been divorced for six years. The name on the cover of her first book, The Bluest Eye, is the name we know her by today. The name of the author printed on that cover is also one of the most famous to ever come out of Ohio. The name was Toni Morrison. Do you ever wonder why beer costs so much if you go to a sporting event? They don't wonder that in Cleveland. They don't wonder it at all. You see, in early June, back in 1974, Cleveland decided to hold a promotion and charge just 10 cents for a cup of beer. What happened next is nothing short of legendary. First, some background information though. On May 29th, the Indians were squaring off against the Texas Rangers in Texas. The Rangers were having a 10-cent beer night of their own. In the bottom of the fourth inning, Texas second baseman Lenny Randall broke up a double play with a hard slide into second base. In his next at-bat in the eighth inning, Cleveland pitcher Matt Wilcox threw a pitch behind Randall's head. On the next pitch, he bunted. Wilcox fielded the ball and went to tag him out when Randall forearm chopped him in the head. Seeing this, Cleveland first baseman John Ellis punched Randall in the face and both benches cleared. Fans threw food and beer at the players. Order was restored though and Texas went on to win the game 3-0. After the game, a reporter questioned Texas manager Billy Martin about the brawl and asked if he was going to bring his armor to Cleveland for their rematch the following week. Nah, Martin responded, they don't have enough fans there to worry about. Over the next five days, Cleveland sports radio host Pete Franklin used this line to whip Cleveland fans into a frenzy. He implored them to turn out for the game and support their hometown Indians. And not only was it going to be a big game, it was also going to be 10 cent beer night at Cleveland Stadium. The day of the game, the Cleveland Press printed, quote, Rinse your stein and get in line. Billy the Kid and his Texas gang are in town, and it's 10 cent beer night at the ballpark. Now, regular price for a beer in 1974 was 65 cents, so 10 cents was quite a deal. It would be about 50 cents in today's money. Unlike other similar promotions, though, Cleveland put no limit on the number of 10 cent beers someone could buy. You could buy them six at a time, as often as you wanted. When game time rolled around, 25,134 fans showed up at Cleveland Stadium. 
twice as many as were expected, and way more than usually showed up for a Tuesday night game. Many fans had started drinking before they arrived, and when they got there, the 10-cent beers started to flow. Soon, the concession stands were overwhelmed, and in a lapse of judgment, fans were allowed to fill their cups directly from the trucks parked behind the outfield. What could possibly go wrong? Early in the game, Cleveland's Leron Lee hit a ball into Rangers pitcher Ferguson Jenkins' stomach. The crowd started chanting, hit him again, hit him again, harder, harder. In only the second inning, a woman ran out onto the field and stepped into the on-deck circle. She flashed her breasts to the crowd and then tried to kiss the umpire. The Cleveland fans went wild. The Rangers jumped to an early 2-0 lead, and after they hit a home run in the fourth, a naked man sprinted across the field and slid into second base. In the fifth inning, a father and son duo ran onto the field and mooned the crowd to hearty cheers and applause. The stadium was rocking, and the 10-cent beer kept flowing. Fans started throwing firecrackers into the Rangers' dugout and bullpen. In total, 19 streakers ran across the field that day. It was all in good fun, though, and somehow, by the bottom of the ninth, the Indians had tied the game at five apiece. They had two outs and two on, and the winning run was on second base, with Leron Lee stepping into the batter's box. It was in that moment that a 19-year-old fan ran onto the field and tried to snatch Texas outfielder Jeff Burrow's cap. Burroughs tried to kick the fan and tripped. Seeing him fall over and thinking he had been attacked, the Texas players poured out of the dugout. Some of them brought bats. Seeing the Rangers players on their way towards the outfield, drunken Cleveland fans surged the field, wielding knives, chains, and pieces of seats they had torn apart during the game. Hundreds of fans made their way onto the field. Realizing the very real danger the Rangers were in, Cleveland players grabbed bats of their own and ran to the defense of the Texas players. They began fighting their own fans. People still in the stands were throwing anything not nailed down onto the field. Steel folding chairs were hurled, one of which hit head umpire Nestor Chilek. As both teams retreated to their locker rooms, Chilek called the game and forfeited it to Texas. He called the Cleveland fans uncontrollable beasts and stated he had never seen anything like it except in a zoo. More fans rushed the field. They brawled and danced and stole the bases and had a merry old time. Finally, the Cleveland Police Department arrived to restore order. Nine arrests were made, the stadium was cleared, and the infamous 10-cent beer night came to an end. 60,000 beers had been sold that night. The next day, reporters asked Cleveland Indians president Ted Bond about the event, to which he responded, quote, Gentlemen, you're giving beer a bad name. The game that night was one of only five forfeit games in Major League Baseball history. Interestingly, three players there that night had been present three years earlier in my hometown of Washington, D.C., when a riot had erupted over the Senators' impending move to Texas. One of them, Rusty Torres, would also be on the field in Chicago in 1979 during the infamous Disco Demolition Night Riot. But that is a different story for a different day. 
also on the field during 10 Cent Beer Night and wearing a Texas uniform, was future Cleveland Indians manager Mike Hargrove, who would lead them to the World Series in 1995 and 1997. He remembers being spit on and pelted with hot dogs and having a near miss with an empty bottle of Thunderbird. 41,848 fans showed up for the next 10 Cent Beer Night, held at Cleveland Stadium just a month and a half later. I'm sure many were disappointed to find that this time they were limited to just two 10 cent beers per person. So the next time you're at a game and you're sipping a $10 beer and wondering why it costs so much, think back to what happened in Cleveland in 1974 when fans there, instead of paying $10 for one beer, got 10 beers for $1. That's it for the show this week. I hope you've had as much fun with it as I have. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast. To find out more about me and my slow journey around the United States, or just to get in touch, check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. For the whole story, be sure you follow my Facebook page. Find me on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks to our musical guest this week, Canton's own Hey Monet, recorded live at a festival they headlined, Little C Music Festival, right there in their hometown of Canton. If you enjoyed their music as much as I did, download it on iTunes or go visit their website, heymonet.com. That's H-E-Y-M-O-N-E-A.com. Our background music and sound effects come from Kevin McLeod over at incomtechmusic.com and the great folks over at freesfx.com. Our theme music from the legendary Memphis Slim. The weather is turning cooler here, and fall is definitely in the air. Pumpkins are popping up everywhere, and the leaves are just starting to change. From here, I'm heading south into Kentucky, the bluegrass state, to enjoy the fall colors and maybe even sip a little bourbon. I hope you'll come along for the ride. Until next time, then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.